I think that the United States, uh, it has a storied tradition of overcoming, uh, not only of weathering periods of domestic upheaval, but also of defying prognostications of terminal decline. There's no self-evident reason why it should be beyond the capacity of the United States to do so once more. So I'm kind of a pragmatic optimist in the sense, and in the sense that America's competitive advantages will not automatically renew themselves. The United States will have to do an extraordinary amount of work at home and abroad to renew those competitive advantages. It has its work cut out for it. There's no constitutional amendment that says, America, thou shalt renew. Uh, Renewal takes work. Uh, But the United States has renewed itself before. Uh, It can do so. Uh, again. And I think certainly uh, as formidable as America's challenges are at home and abroad, I think that uh, I would rather have America's challenges than those uh, that that China and Russia confront. So I'm cautiously optimistic, but the United States needs to get to work and it needs to get to work now. Welcome to The Hale Report. My name is Lyricuse Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView, and your host today, Wednesday, September 21st, 2022. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, as well as listen to our podcasts, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Substack. My guest today for our 37th episode is Ali Wine, who's speaking to us from Washington, I'm assuming, Ali, today. That's correct. Ali, welcome to the Hale Report. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Lyric. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Let me tell our listeners a little bit about our guest. Ali Wine is a senior analyst at the Eurasia Group, one of the foremost geopolitical shops founded by Ian Bremmer. He's a senior analyst with Eurasia Group's global macro geopolitics practice, focusing on something close to my heart, U.S.-China relations and great power competition. He's done stints at the Carnegie Endowment, the Rand Corporation, the Atlantic Council, and the Modern War Institute. He received dual bachelor's in management science and political science from MIT and earned his master's in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School. Most importantly, he is an avid coffee drinker, and Ali continues to expand his collection of mugs, cups, and tumblers, which he will be doing. You might know that all of our guests receive a uh, an EconView coffee mug with their name on it, uh, along with a bag of Chicago roasted coffee. So I, I know that you'll enjoy it. I can't wait. I mean, you've already made my day, and we haven't even begun our conversation in earnest. Thank you, Ali. Thank you so much. So uh, you might know if you've uh, ever listened to any of my podcasts, I always ask people how they got interested in what ultimately became their life's work. Do you mind sharing that with your journey with us to where you are today and to writing this actually wonderful book? Sure. Well, well for, thank you so much, Lyric, for, uh, for the kind words. Thank you for, for having me on your podcast. It's a real privilege to, to be with you. And... The story is, it's kind of a strange one. And I think it just, it, it, it's a meandering story, but I think that sometimes uh, we all have, we all have detours, uh, professional and or personal in our lives. And I, I certainly am no exception. Uh, I have to confess with, with a, a certain degree of chagrin, and I know I've caused my parents a lot of heartache in the process. 
up until my junior year of high school, uh, which was when September 11th happened, up until 9-11, I, I had no interest in world affairs at all. I had no interest in political science and I hated to read. I hated to write. Uh, I thought that I was going to be a math major. And my parents who are, uh, my parents are from Pakistan originally. They're certainly much more global citizens than myself. And when I was growing up, uh, they always exhorted me, Ali, please read a newspaper, read a journal, learn more about what's going on uh, outside of America's borders. And when I look back, I'm, I'm kind of psychoanalyzing myself retrospectively, but I do think that subconsciously, uh, I came of age in the heady 90s. So it's peak triumphalism. The Soviet Union has collapsed. The American economy is booming. Obviously, before this is before 9-11. And I think that subconsciously, when my parents exhorted me to read, exhorted me to learn about the rest of the world, I think that subconsciously, I didn't really understand the imperative. Uh, I think that subconsciously, I thought to myself that American preeminence was, wasn't an aberration, but it was an inbuilt condition. Uh, the idea that China and or Russia might in one day uh, you know, might one day in due course come to contest U.S. influence, it seemed completely inconceivable. Uh, bad things, quote unquote, happened over there, quote unquote. Um, and so I, I think I felt that I could afford to be insular. Uh, and then when 9-11 happened my junior year of high school, uh, you obviously didn't need a degree in political science or international relations to recognize that something very uh, profound had happened, something very sobering had happened. And then my senior year, so the following year, my senior year of high school, uh, we were debating whether or not to intervene in Iraq. And again, that debate kind of flew over my head. So the combination of 9-11, which was sort of a jolt, uh, a jolt to me uh, as, as a citizen, as, as, a, uh, as a high schooler at the time, and then the subsequent debate over whether or not to intervene in Iraq, really compelled me to say, hey, I've, I've been quite insular and I need to learn a little bit about the rest of the world. And so I... I had been admitted to MIT by then, and I wrote a letter to the, the then Dean of Admissions at MIT, and I asked her if she would be willing to allow me to uh, take a year off, to take a gap year between high school and college. Um, she very graciously uh, accepted uh, that request, and it was during that gap year that I stumbled across a book by uh, Joe Nye, who was then the Dean of the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, and it was called The Paradox of American Power. Uh, I read that book, uh, found it uh, fascinating and, and accessible. It was sophisticated, but it was also accessible. And uh, I sent an email to then Dean Nye telling him how much I'd enjoyed the book, how much I had learned from it. And he said to me, I wasn't even expecting him to respond just because of his stature and I was just a random high school graduate. But he took the time to respond and he said, if you ever find yourself in, in Cambridge, let me know and we can meet. And so I, I, booked, uh, I booked a flight uh, to Boston. <laughs> Uh, basically immediately <laughs> after getting that reply, I uh, had a, a wonderful conversation with Dean Nye and he told me, he asked me about my upbringing. He asked me about this nascent interest in political science. And at the end of our conversation, he said, it sounds like you've, you've found a real passion and I urge you to, uh, to, to fulfill that passion and to, to go with it. And the rest is history. Well, that's a fascinating, Joe Nye is such a, a wonderful person. Absolutely. And wonderful to hear a story of encouragement for a high schooler. That's, that's really lovely. But, you know, you, what you describe really began in tragedy, but your yeah. book, America's Great Power Opportunity, is actually rather optimistic. The framework of your book is that the, the decline of the United States is not inevitable and that... Uh, China and Russia are not indestructible. 
And can you just, I, I may be um, describing this very poorly, but maybe you can um, describe what you feel is the thesis of your book. And also for our uh, listeners who are primarily interested in economics and business and investing, how the, that thesis would affect their actions potentially. Sure. So I mean, you, you distilled it. You distilled it very well. And the the upshot of the book, the, the core argument of the book is that the United States has a, what I call a great power opportunity. And of course, that phrase great power opportunity is as you can guess, it's it's sort of a, a spin or a play on great power competition, which is very much one of the phrases du jour uh, in our nation's capital. Um, the argument is that the United States has a great power opportunity to pursue a more affirmative, proactive foreign policy that, while according a rightful place to the management of strategic frictions with China and Russia, isn't beholden to the decisions that those two countries make. And I try to, in the book, I try to cast China and Russia as being formidable competitors, multifaceted competitors, but but manageable competitors. And I think that we've seen uh, in recent years and in recent months, we've seen abundant evidence that while China and Russia, they're not strategic, as the quip goes, they're strategically not two feet tall, but they're not 10 feet tall either. And they certainly are not immune from strategic missteps of their own. Um, China, I think ever since Xi Jinping uh, took the helm of China, but certainly I think in particular since the onset of the coronavirus pandemic, I think that China has pursued a course of diplomacy that's proven quite counterproductive for its its diplomatic interests. And today, uh, even though China is economically more central than it was prior to the onset of the coronavirus pandemic, I would argue that its major power relationships are are in, in worse condition. And I think you could argue that with the exception of its relationship with Russia, and, and we can talk about that relationship, I think that even that relationship is becoming something of a reputational albatross around its neck. With the exception of its relationship with Russia, I would argue that virtually all of its major power relationships um, have either stagnated or deteriorated. Um, so I, I think that China has, and I think that China, uh, had it comported itself differently, uh, I think that we would be ha we could potentially be having a very different conversation today. We might be having a conversation in which we talked not only about China's growing economic heft, but also China's growing ability to uh, to drive wedges between the United States and its core allies and partners. And then Russia, of course, with its invasion of Ukraine, I think has committed a, a quite remarkable act of strategic self-sabotage. Uh, Russia, uh, Russia has depleted its military. It has eroded its deterrence capacity. It has rendered itself further beholden to China. Uh, it has given NATO, the European Union, the West uh, new leases on life. And even though Russia is presently blunting the impact of sanctions via capital controls and by taking advantage of, of high energy prices, I do think the Western sanctions over the medium to long run are going to curtail Russia's access to capital and technology that it will require for its long-term economic development. And so my, so my judgment is that at least as of now, speaking on September 21st, 2022, I think that one the combination of the United States's enduring competitive advantages, some of which I would argue are unique, along with China and Russia's competitive missteps, give the United States a little bit of foreign policy breathing room so that even as we are vigilant about what China and Russia are doing, even as we compete with China and Russia selectively and we are attuned to actions that China and Russia take that might implicate our vital national interests, that we aren't designing a foreign policy that is tethered uh, tethered, reflexively tethered to the decisions that they make. Um, and then just a few comments on sort of the economic implications. Uh, economically, I think that I would, I, would, I would make a few points. One, uh, 
I think that we're realizing particular. So one, we're recognizing that interdependence, I think we're increasingly appreciating that interdependence is not an unalloyed good. Uh, interdependence, it has begotten uh, economic vulnerabilities. It's begotten national security vulnerabilities. And so one of America's uh, imperatives going forward in dealing with China and Russia will be to strike a balance between preserving as much as possible the commercial benefits of interdependence, but also mitigating the security and economic vulnerabilities. And and getting that balancing act is, is incredibly difficult. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, it is an important imperative for the United States going forward. So that would be point one. Uh, point two would be, I think that it's important to, um, it's important to impart a little bit more granularity and nuance to this discussion around decoupling or deglobalization or disentanglement. I, I, and I think decoupling in particular, there is a tendency, at least in, in uh, and you would know infinitely better, Lyric, but you know, my sense is that in a lot of the, the research that I do and in, and in a lot of the conversations I have, there's a tendency to, to cast decoupling as a binary. So either, and particularly in dealing with, with China, so there's a sense that either the United States and China, you know, they're fully coupled or they're decoupled. And there's a sense that we had this, uh, the, the United States and China had a certain configuration of interdependence prior to the arrival of the Trump administration. Uh, and now they're going to right. disentangle their economies entirely. And I think the reality is much more nuanced. The reality is that the United States and China, they have many levels of interdependence, uh, or they're interdependent in many domains. And in each of those domains, the nature of their interdependence is different. The sophistication and complexity of right. their interdependence is different. And so it, so decoupling, disentanglement, they're not binaries, they're continuums. You have a great phrase in the book. Um, there's several great phrases, um, but one of them, for somebody who didn't like to read or write, it's, it's amazing. But um, And one of them is the inescapability of cohabitation. On this little blue panel, it, I think it's a realistic kind of view in what you're talking, the granularity that's required. And that decoupling is just this binary way of looking at our relationship is, is just not feasible. It's not sustainable. And, and well, no, Lyric, I, I appreciate the the kind words. I and and I I appreciate your your highlighting that phrase because I do think, uh, and because of of what I would argue that inescapability of cohabitation, it's one of the reasons why I also think that examining U.S.-China relations through the prism of power transition theory is misguided. You know, my sense is that the United States and China each have unique competitive advantages that the other can't readily replicate. And it's not clear to me that the United States can relegate China to a marginal position in world affairs. I mean, if you look at China, just you look at its population size, you look at its economic heft, China already, despite you know, concerns about, uh, or despite the growth slowdown associated with zero COVID, despite uh, this confluence of macroeconomic headwinds that China presently confronts, uh, I think that it's reasonable to forecast that China will be able to muddle through those obstacles. And I think it's reasonable to forecast that China may well possess the world's largest economy before the middle of the century. Already, if you look at IMF estimates, uh, China's economy is roughly about 80% as large as that, uh, large as that of, uh, of the United States. So if you look at China's population size, you look at its economic size, you look at its extant centrality in global supply chains, uh, you look at its uh, its export apparatus, and, and, not just, and not just that, at its export apparatus, you also look at the number of globally competitive uh, tech uh, companies that it fields. You look at its increasing capacity for domestic innovation. Uh, you look at its geoeconomic statecraft. So whether it's the Belt and Road Initiative, which is being recalibrated, um, you look at 
uh, you know, various uh, manifestations or expressions of geoeconomic statecraft that enable China to exercise uh, a global footprint. So in view of all of those realities, I, I think that the idea that the United States would be able to marginalize China or that China will uh, succumb to, to a Soviet-style fate, I, I think that those assumptions are, are misguided. And then on the flip side, or I guess vice versa, it's not clear to me, despite America's relative decline, we're living in 2022, not 1992. Uh, I don't think that the United States will be able to regain the level of preeminence, uh, relative or absolute, that it enjoyed 30 years ago. But the United States still is, a, is the world's preeminent power. And if you look at the United States' possession of a reserve currency, uh, China is a ways away from having a comparable reserve currency. Right. If you look at the United States' the size and, and sophistication of its diplomatic network, its military uh, power projection capacity, and so forth, it's not clear to me that China can, can overtake the United States for global preeminence, particularly if this gap between its economic heft uh, and its distrust among advanced industrial democracies persists. So my sense is that the United States and China, I think that both of them are going to endure. Uh, I don't think that they are going to sort of uh, have kind of a, a, the kind of power transition that we associate with the United States and the United Kingdom. And so then the real question uh, for both, you know, for both countries, but I'll just focus on the United States. If you accept the hypothesis that that I've set forward or that I've put forth that China is likely to prove an enduring competitor. So no, it's not on a glide path to global hegemony, but it's also not primed for a Soviet-style collapse. If you accept that hypothesis, then the question is for the United States, not how to achieve, achieve a decisive victory, but how to pursue that strained, ambiguous, uncomfortable cohabitation. And we don't really have, we don't have a playbook for that kind of undertaking. Now, it's, I'll just make one last point because the Cold War analogy is often invoked. It certainly is true that the United States and the Soviet Union, they had a very long struggle near, that lasted nearly half a century. But I think that one of the reasons I, I worry about the, the continued and, and I would submit growing invocation of the Cold War is that it puts the United States in a frame of mind to think about a decisive resolution. So even though the US-Soviet rivalry lasted for a very long time, it ended decisively. The Soviet Union collapsed. And I don't think that we should be thinking about China uh, in that lens. I think that we should be, again, thinking about a strained, ambiguous, uh, indecisive cohabitation. And we're going to have to create a new playbook to deal with that reality. Right. I really enjoyed your chapter, by the way, on the use and misuse of historic Thank you. analogies. Uh, and particularly since um, I spent a lot of time reading about the 1930s, sure. um, that discussion was, was really good. But I think in, in what's, what's really new um, is that um, the other, each side in the case of U.S. and China, I don't really think they understand each other's vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. So um, there are domestic challenges in China that we don't view. So I would take issue with your forecast that uh, China will become the world's largest economy. I just think mm. there's so many demographic challenges that Absolutely. they face. Uh, by the end of this century, China and the United States will have populations that pretty much converge in terms of their absolute numbers. So I think there's a path that's maybe a little different than most people suppose. Absolutely. But you, but you bring up a great point about the domestic challenges that we have now in the United States. Um, I'm just going to quote you, the coalescing challenges to U.S. democracy will undercut America's external position over the long run, at least as much as the various steps that China and Russia take to counter U.S. influence if not more. 
I think I, I can't remember if that's in your book or on Twitter, but I think that exactly describes um, the situation. Can we, as a divided country, really have an effective foreign policy? Well, well first uh, on the you know on the point that you made, and I. Th- it's quite remarkable, actually, that the discussion of not just China's economic outlook, but its its outlook more generally, uh, the the discussion has has substantially shifted quite a lot. I mean, certainly, you know, five years ago, you know, ten years ago, a lot of the discussion about China was focused on was was premised on uh, sort of this notion of inexorable resurgence. And I think that now you see that even though I think the most observers on balance still think that China's comprehensive national power is going to continue growing for the indefinite future, you do have more and more prominent observers who are adducing China's various vulnerabilities and, uh, and, and, convert, and, and reaching the hypothesis that, uh, that you've put forth, which is that China's at, China, even in aggregate terms, might not overtake the United States economically. Uh, one study that I find uh, particularly compelling, now it the study does conclude that on balance, it's it's likely that China's gross domestic product will overtake that of the United States, but it it's offers a much more, I think, textured view of China's economic outlook. And this is a study that the Lowy Institute put out a few months ago. And it said that most forecasts have China growing between now and 2050, have China growing by, in real terms, uh, have China growing by about four to 5% annually out to 2050. This Lowy Institute study, a very, very meticulous study and comprehensive study says, they actually put that range at closer to between two to three percent, and they say that if you, if China were indeed to grow between two and three percent in real terms between now and 2050, yes, it would have the world's largest economy by then, um, but its margin of economic preeminence would not be sufficiently large as to allow China to overtake the United States for global preeminence, and it wouldn't allow China uh, by itself to compete with a U.S.-led coalition of, of advanced industrial. Uh, democratic allies and partners, and so I, I think I'll just make one sort of one more point on on, uh, or I'll just make one sort of historical footnote to this point, and then move on. Um, I think that there's a lot of you know we we focus a lot on you know if and when China's gross domestic product will overtake that of the United States, and even if it were to do so, and and again there are forecasts that suggested it it will, but even if China's gross domestic product were to overtake that of the United States. There's a historical precedent to caution against equating aggregate economic half of global preeminence, and that's, of course, uh, the power transition between the United States and the United Kingdom. So the United States, if you look, if you ask various economic historians or look at their tabulations, the United States overtook the United Kingdom in aggregate economic half somewhere at some point in the late 19th century. So some economic historians say the 1870s, others say the 1880s or 1890s, but the late 19th century. But the United States didn't become the world's preeminent power until after World War II. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and I think that even that power transition might have been substantially delayed had it not been for just the utter devastation that Europe and, and Asia had incurred during the war. So there was a substantial interregnum between when the United States overtook the United Kingdom in, in aggregate economic terms and when that actual power transition occurred. Um, and, and, I, and I think that to your point, um, a lot of the a lot of the structural headwinds that you know that that observers have been warning about for some time, I really think that they only now are starting to manifest in a serious way. So whether you look at you know whether you look at uh, China's shrinking labor force and therefore the the decreasing the decreasing ratio between China's working age population uh, and its its elderly population, whether you look at 
China's increasingly exhausted growth model, whether you look at, or in some cases, now those are structural forces, uh, growing environmental degradation, but in a, alongside those structural trends, you also have, you have certain uh, forces that are not really structural, but they're more policy choices. So if you look at Xi Jinping's uh, crackdown on major technology companies, if you look at his imposition of a really quite onerous, increasingly onerous uh, regulatory apparatus, um, you know, the, so the combination of structural trends on the one hand and Xi Jinping's regulatory campaign on the other uh, makes for, I think, a very, um, I think it makes for a very challenging growth outlook for China, uh, looking beyond zero COVID, especially when you realize that Xi Jinping, he seems to prioritize the maintenance of his political control over the maintenance of a certain rate of economic growth. So I think that China's growth outlook is very strained. And then add on one layer which is that because of growing concern about China's resurgence in not just in the West, but also among J Australia, Japan, South Korea, um, I think that one of the big questions is, will China, you know, how much progress in light of growing Western, or I shouldn't say, and say, shouldn't say Western, but in light of growing pressure from advanced industrial democracies in, in Europe and Asia, uh, how much progress will China be able to make on its quest to achieving technological self-reliance? And I think particular, in particular, how much progress will it be able to make in overcoming arguably its greatest uh, developmental uh, Achilles heel, which is that it's not yet able to manufacture indigenously world-class semiconductors. That's a major, major Achilles heel. So, so I, I think it's all a way, kind of a rambling way of saying that a, a rambling way of saying that I, I think that your your suspicion of the this kind of presumption that China's GDP will in due course overtake that of the United States it's a very very well grounded uh, suspicion. Um, and then to the the point that you made on sort of the the interplay between America's domestic politics and its external competitiveness, I have to tell you, Lyric, when I so I first began writing the book in earnest in 2019, and 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 as you'll see from from having read the book, the book does focus primarily on external challenges. So it is principally devoted to to try and right sizing the competitive challenges from China, Russia, the the China Russia relationship. When I first began writing the book, relatively, if you asked me, you know, Ali, which concerns you more, external challenges or internal ones? I think I probably would have weighted external challenges at, right. at least as much mm -hmm. as internal challenges, if not more. By the time I concluded the book, or by the time I, I sent the final version of the manuscript to the publisher, I was relatively more concerned about America's internal challenges. And the reason is that, you know, and, and we talked about, we were talking, we were having this conversation just a few minutes ago. I think that China and Russia have proven themselves to be self-limiting competitors by virtue of the way in which they've comported themselves militarily and diplomatically. I think that they really have undercut themselves and they've driven allies, US allies and partners, I think, further into America's embrace. But over that same time span between when I first began writing the book and when I sent it to the pub sent the final version to the publishers, um, America's domestic politics have grown much more fractious. Actually, fractious is an understatement. They've grown much more toxic, much more virulent. And I, and I would argue that absent absent an ability to to restore some sense of national cohesion and purpose in the United States, absent some ability of Americans who have different political views to come together and make common cause, uh, a lot of the questions around external competition become moot. Um, and I think that it's important to, to think of internal renewal, domestic cohesion, not as hoped for byproducts of external competitiveness, not as complements to external com competitiveness, but as preconditions for it. And I think that a lot of allies and partners, they look at the United States and say, goodness, can the United States 
is it able to demonstrate basic competence in managing its domestic challenges? And so getting the domestic politics right is going to be um, really, really challenging. And, and I worry uh, just by way, I'll, I'll just make one last point by way of a personal, uh, I shouldn't say digression, but I, I think it's sort of a personal story that illuminates this broader point. When I was growing up, uh, I could meet a stranger, have a perfectly pleasant conversation for several hours and not really know the first thing about that individual's politics. And even if politics did come up, and even if and even if my interlocutor and myself discovered that we had political disagreements, we subordinated political disagreements to to a vibrant friendship. It seems that now the it seems that now the sequence has been reversed. It seems increasingly now that individuals, before they really know much about one another, they impose on one another political litmus tests. And so they first establish how much political commonality do we have? And if there's a, if a certain threshold of political commonality is met, <laughs> then our relationship can take the next step and we can become friends. But that kind of sequence didn't exist when I was growing up. I think that it's very damaging to America's internal politics. I think it's very damaging to the, the allure of our democratic example. And it, and it feeds into this narrative that China and Russia try to promote, which is that uh, look at the United States. It preaches the the virtues of democracy, but look at look at what has this open marketplace of ideas. Look at what this open marketplace of I, uh, ideas has wrought. It's wrought disinformation. It's wrought bitterness. It's wrought polarization. Now, some observers will say, "Well, uh, the United States has been polarized before. Its its political its domestic politics have been riven before. What makes the present period unique?" And and there's certain it is certainly the conceit of every generation to say. Our domestic woes have never been greater in number and intensity and complexity. Um, but I think if you look at, you know, it, I often I often cite this book or point to this book by Suzanne uh, Lee, uh, Suzanne Mettler and Robert Lieberman. They put out a book called Four Threats, and they make they make the argument that there have historically been four threats to American democracy. Uh, they say that what makes the present period of democratic distress different is they argue, and I think quite compellingly that all four of those threats have now coalesced. Whereas in, in previous periods of democratic uh, distress, a certain subset of those threats manifested, but not all four. Uh, you know, one might, one can quibble with that proposition or with that thesis, but I think they do a very uh, convincing job of demonstrating it. But it's all a way of saying that we have to figure out a way of getting the, the domestic politics right. We also have to avoid fatalism. And then I, I, maybe I'll stop here. Something that worries, it's, it's healthy to be, uh, it's healthy to be anxious about the state of your domestic politics. It's healthy to be anxious about the your position in the world, but only if that anxiety is harnessed in a healthy way, only if it's harnessed in a prudent way, such that you're taking steps at home and abroad to renew, replenish, and repurpose your competitive advantages. But with that, but when that anxiety, if and when that anxiety lapses into fatalism, uh, if and when that anxiety morphs into a sense that America's democratic experiment has irrevocably failed, if it morphs into a sense that America's external position is in terminal irreversible decline, that kind of fatalism or that kind of you know, pessimism, uh, it doesn't produce prudent policies. It produ it's more prone to producing anxiety, defensiveness, uh, reactionary policies, which will ultimately hasten America's relative decline, in my view. You know, it's, I think Americans have doubts, not just about what's going on internally and faith in government and so forth, but also about our foreign policy, sure. which for decades seems to, and I wanted to ask you what you thought about this. It seems to have been focused on regime change. Mm -hmm. And actually now with Putin, it's also focused on regime change. And yet we've had spectacular failures. 
one after the other, especially in the Middle East, trying to pursue that policy, thinking there's never going to be anybody worse. And every single time there's somebody worse, you know, having spent part of my childhood in Iran, you know, during the Shah, that was a better time than what is happening in Iran today. So we did not have a positive influence. So um, if, and during that time when we were doing all of this, it seems that we weren't paying attention to um, the competitiveness that we needed to create. At the same time, China, and I have to say, I think this is something good that they've done that, that you call out as well, is um, they work within existing structures. Mm-hmm. They don't try to overthrow governments. They don't try to ignore the WTO and the United Nations. Instead, they embed themselves well, through the Belt and Road, through economic means, through basically institutional capture of many of our international institutions, we have failed, we left a vacuum. And do you think that's a correct assessment or am I too pessimistic? No, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and in term, so I, I guess I'll sort of take the two points in turn. I mean, certainly uh, I think that when you have, and, and I think that this really, really applies to sort of the immediate aftermath of the Cold War, but when your preponderance is so overwhelming, I, I don't want to say that the United States ever exercised unipolarity or hegemony. I've always found those terms to be somewhat overstated. But nonetheless, when you have such a remarkable, overwhelming degree of preponderance, such as that which the United States enjoyed in, in, in the 1990s, uh, that level of preponderance, it breeds uh, complacency, it breeds hubris. I think it also, it, uh, it blinds you to uh, the necessity for choice, the necessity for trade-offs. I think it also leads you to, uh, or I think at least it led the United States to overstate the ability of military power to achieve political outcomes. And, you know, certainly for, so I was actually having a conversation with a, with a friend of mine, a, a much younger friend of mine just yesterday. And I said that I, referring to Ali Wine, I came of age during peak American triumphalism, whereas my friend, I was talking with him and he said, Ali, you know, my crucible experiences have been, uh, you know, the global financial crisis, failed interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, a, a seeming Arab spring that proved to be an Arab fall or an Arab winter where a lot of initial hopes were dashed, um, you know, sort of uncertain, uh, uncertain results of U.S. involvement in, in Syria, Yemen, and so forth. And so, you know, his crucible experiences were very different. He's, um, his, you know, worldview has been much more shaped by America's domestic challenges as well as the uh, the failings of U.S. foreign policy abroad, and so, uh, and I think that that's why I I talk about in the book the need for the United States to reckon more fully and more honestly with just the limits to its its unilateral influence. Uh, the United States is not omnipotent; it never has been omnipotent, and I think that the sooner that it comes to terms with that reality, the uh, the better. Um, and then on the point about China, uh, exactly to your your point. This is one of many, I think, crucial distinctions between China and Russia. I, I think that there's a, we often lump, we in the United States, I think we often lump China and Russia together because they both are, they both are authoritarian regimes. They have uh, a shared animus towards the extent of, of Western and in particular U.S. influence. They have a number of shared grievances. Uh, and yet they have very, they not only have very different material capacities and very different ambitions for their places in the international system, uh, they have very different foreign policies. They have very different, uh, they have very different approaches to exercising their influence. 
So if you look at Russia, I think that Russia, and I, I think we're seeing with its invasion of Ukraine, its weaponization of energy and food, I think that Russia's sense is that it feels basically permanently aggrieved by the configuration of the post-war order, and in particular, the post-Cold War order. And it feels that, I'm, who knows what, what Putin is thinking now, but my sense is that Russia has, has rendered the judgment that it can more effectively accrue and exercise influence via destabilization. So rather than trying to embed itself further within sort of the Bretton Woods international institutions and, and mold them over time, that by wreaking havoc, by attempting to collapse the system from without, that it can exercise more influence. And it certainly has demonstrated with its invasion of Ukraine, its weaponization of energy and food, that uh, it's reminded the rest of the world that it matters, it's not going anywhere. I think that China, on the other hand, to your point, I think that what China has done is it has embedded itself steadily more. So it's, I think it's taken two parallel tracks. One, it has embedded itself steadily more and more within existing international institutions, whether the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund, uh, the World Bank. But in parallel, it's also establishing uh, uh, extra system institutions. So whether uh, the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank, whether the Belt and Road, uh, it's recently debuted this, I wouldn't call it a formal initiative, but I guess this kind of uh, sort of nascent notion of a global security initiative, but it, it's, it's pursuing both tracks. And I think that its approach has been that one, if the United States isn't present, fill the vacuum. And I think that we certainly saw during, I think particularly during the Trump administration, in many cases, China didn't really have to do that much work uh, in order to assert itself within international institutions because the Trump administration deemed it prudent for the United States to basically exit the field. So if the United States isn't there, China will say, well, we will fill the vacuum. If the United States is there, China will say, well, we will still, we still want to be there and assert our own influence. And so and I think that it's been very, um, I think that it's been successful in that regard. And it's not clear to me uh, if you, and, and I'll just make one last point. Uh, I think that if you zoom out, if you zoom out beyond the G7, uh, if you zoom out to say the G20 or the G77, you know, China does exercise a lot of influence uh, via uh, its, its economic statecraft, via its, its technological uh, offerings. And I do think that as well, you know, China is not going to be easily, uh, you know, dislodged from some of these, you know, preeminent uh, or from some of these core international institutions. And my sense is that the overwhelming majority of countries in the world, and particularly in the developing world, um, having witnessed the devastation that the Cold War inflicted upon such vast stretches of the world, I think that the vast majority of countries, uh, they don't want to see Cold War 2.0. They don't want to see a, an ever-expanding U.S.-China great power competition that, uh, that, that paralyzes them. They want to exercise agency outside of a G2 aperture. They want to advance their national interests outside of a G2 aperture. They increasingly reject the presumption that they must make a quote unquote strategic choice between Washington or Beijing. So I think that the United States, again, and it goes to reinforce the point that the United States should think of China not as, a, not as an adversary to be defeated, but as a competitor with which to cohabitate indefinitely. If you'd like to become a supporter of EconView and the Hale Report, please visit our website and become a subscriber. Now, your book was written before the invasion of uh, Ukraine, although I, I noticed that you updated uh, it in the, <laughs> in the back to, to include some of that. But yes. there, it, there is within the book a discussion of whether or not Russia is a great power. Yeah. And speaking of Joe Nye, um, he believes that Russia is not and that instead it's a spoiler. It's not really exercised. Is, would you, where do you fall 
you're very um, even-handed in your book. So I, I wasn't quite sure what you felt about that discussion. I think in part it was that the I spent a lot of time trying to to see if there was a widely shared definition of what it means to be a great power. And and I candidly found that the best, I shouldn't say definition because it's not a definition, but the best kind of assessment of that phrase great power that I came across was we often we, we often say the beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and I think that one can say something similar about great powers. Um, the notion of a great power is a, a power is great in the eye of, of the beholder. But I think the turning to Russia, uh, whether one believes that whether one believes Russia is a great power or not, I think that its great power status uh, is is even more imperiled uh, with its invasion of of Ukraine. But but believing aside. Even if we re- let's rewind the, cr- the clock to February twenty third, twenty twenty two, before Russia invaded Ukraine, even then, I think a number of observers say, okay, yes, Russia has the world's foremost or it has the world's largest nuclear stockpile, but it's not the world's only nuclear armed country. If you look at its gross domestic product, there are many countries that have larger economies than Russia does. Uh, there are countries that have larger populations than Russia does. Uh, there are, and so you know, the example that I often came across is if Russia is a great power, if how is it that Russia is a great power but India is not? So India is a nuclear armed power like Russia. Uh, India has a substantially larger population than Russia. It has a large, a substantially larger economy than Russia. It's, I would argue, far more embedded within core international institutions than Russia is. I think that it's expanding its diplomatic profile in a far more constructive manner than Russia is. And yet, most observers don't classify India as a great power. So, so one, I, I think that we can all agree that the, uh, the criteria for becoming a great power are, are somewhat fuzzy. Uh, and certainly, I think that Russia has done itself I don't think that Russia has done itself any favors uh, with with its conduct. And again, um, if you look at Russia's military power, it is now it has now been substantially depleted, and Russia militarily continues to bleed. Uh, its deterrence capacity, I think, has been substantially eroded. Uh, its economy, it's not clear to me that over the medium to long run that Russia has the foundations in places to to sustain its economic development over the medium to long run. So. I think that Russia has really, again, by its own, I think, misguided volition, has really cut itself. Uh, it, it really has lowered itself within sort of the pecking order of uh, the sort of the global power, you know, pecking order. So it's again these terms, whether great power, superpower, middle power, they're in, they're intrinsically subjective, they're intrinsically fuzzy. But but Russia has not done itself any favors, and and I think that there are reasonable questions to be asked. Why is it that Russia is considered a great power in much of the scholarly literature, but but countries such as say you know, India, Australia, South Korea, Japan, and so forth are not? I think it's a very legitimate analytical question. Right. You know, um, I've been thinking about this um, lately. We we tend to look at countries as either being democratic or authoritarian. Sure. But maybe that's not really the right way to look at it. And I've been thinking about, you know, maybe with the death of Queen Elizabeth mm-hmm. and the British Empire going into definitely a new phase, but really maybe what distinguishes China and Russia and maybe Turkey as well is they, they seem to be living in this era of having um, territorial ambitions, Mm -hmm. dreams of empire. And maybe that's how, uh, another way, you know, to look at, at how uh, these countries, why, why Russia is different than India, for example. I don't think India has territorial ambitions. 
neither does the United States anymore. Right. You know, so it, things have really changed, but I, it, they're living in the 18th century, maybe. It's a really interesting point. And it, Lyric, what you just said, it reminds me that one of the books on, on my reading list um, uh, is, a, is a new book by Jeffrey Mankoff um, at National Defense University. And, and he makes, uh, and he act, he's done a very, very meticulous study uh, examining uh, these countries and talking about their, uh, sort of their imperial roots, their imperial roots, their imperial legacies, and perhaps their extant uh, imperial, imperial ambitions. Um, I think that if you turn to Russia, if Russia did harbor, uh, and if Russia ever harbored, and if Russia, may, and even if Russia may yet harbor imperial ambitions of restoring kind of the uh, the pre-collapse of the Soviet Union status quo ante, I think that those ambitions, at least for the time being, uh, basically lie dead in Ukraine. I, I think that Russia, it's what Russia has done is it's not only constrained its own long-term economic development and rendered itself more beholden to China, but it's contributed to the very encirclement that it fears the most. And so NATO is poised to admit two new members. The European Union is uh, has granted membership candidate status to Ukraine and Moldova. Uh, the West has a new lease on life. And I think that Europe is now going to be, Europe is not only now going to undertake, or Europe is not only now poised to undertake very sweeping investments in its in its defense. Uh, but I think that Europe is now going to be far more vigilant against uh, future expressions of Russian uh, irredentism. So I, th I think that Russia, whatever imperial ambitions it may once have harbored or may yet harbor, I think that it has severely constricted the, the potential expression of those ambitions. And similarly with China, obviously there, there's a lot of discussion about what implications Russian aggression in Ukraine might have for Chinese designs on Taiwan. And, and I'm convinced by an argument that Andy Nathan, or I should say Andrew Nathan um, of Columbia University has put forward. Um, he makes the argument, and, and Min Shin Pei has made this argument as well, um, that a full-fledged Chinese invasion of Taiwan would basically spell the end of the China dream. However, however Xi Jinping, whatever Xi Jinping envisions the China dream to be, but and, and I agree with that assessment. I think that the, the military response to any Chinese attack uh, on Taiwan would be devastating. I think that the, I think that the economic devastation would be crippling. I think that, uh, I think that a, an invasion would be uh, ruinous for political stability uh, at home for China. And I think that what we're seeing right now, which is sort of a, a growing sort of latticework or a growing patchwork of sort of Eurasian coalitions to push back against China, I suspect that those coalitions would morph into not just de facto containment, but potentially also de jure containment. Uh, I, I think that an attack on Taiwan would be, would basically spell the end of, of whatever imperial ambitions China might, might have. But I think that to your point, um, for, for these countries you mentioned, whether it's, it's China, Russia, Turkey, Iran, uh, history looms large. History looms large. Uh, memory looms large, uh, and I think that very often, you know, one of my, um, you know, one of my greatest sort of uh, desires now, as I as I try to think about great power competition, how we manage strategic frictions with China and Russia, is I'm really, really trying to uh, to dive deeply into sort of the wellspring of applied history, and I'm really consulting the the scholarship of applied historians who are scrutinizing uh, China, Russia, Turkey, and Iran, and and examining what lessons their histories. Uh, might hold for their for their presence and also for their future policy. So whether it's the work and culture, of, yeah. absolutely, 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 mm -hmm. and it's it's critically important. So whether it's looking at the you know the scholarship of say uh, Andrew Earhart, who is now 
uh, at, uh, he's now a, a postdoctoral fellow at, at Johns Hopkins, uh, you know, whether it's looking at the work of, of Frank Gabin or, or Jeff Mankoff, but, but really, really diving into the, the wellspring of applied historians and looking at what we can learn about these countries' worldviews and, and potential ambitions, uh, but drawing on historical lessons. So we need to learn more history. I certainly need to learn more history and think about its application to the present. You know, um, you mentioned um, the tragic irony of COVID. So we're talking about how the world is becoming bifurcated. Our our countries are becoming uh, uh, more divided. But at the same time, I, you would have thought that a threat, a global threat like COVID would have done more to unite the world and increase cooperation. And instead, it seems to have had the opposite effect and we're now facing all kinds of consequences. Did that surprise you too? Not just surprise. I think. Or disappoint you. <laughs> both. Well, I would say, yeah. you know, surprise and disappointment would be understatements. It's just, it's, it's really difficult to overstate the, not just the irony, but just the, the tragedy. I mean, I remember, I remember that when the World Health Organization, I think we all do, I believe it was March 11th, 2020, when the World Health Organization officially declared the coronavirus to be a pandemic. And, and my thought was that that declaration would occasion the kind of emergency bilateral coordination and multilateral cooperation that we saw in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. And so- Exactly. Yeah. So when, when Lehman Brothers collapsed and when the economy was then in free, when, so Lehman Brothers collapses, the, the global economy uh, goes into this, you know, goes into free fall. And there was a very quick, there was a very uh, rapid realization on the part of uh, officials in the United States, officials in China and officials elsewhere that if we don't put the brakes on this fast moving recession, it, it could well morph into another you know, great depression. And so the United States and, and China engaged in emergency bilateral economic coordination uh, they activated the G20, and so certainly now 2008 and 2009. I, I don't want to be, I don't want to sound overly sanguine. 2008 and 2009, they were brutal for the global economy. But the important point is, they could have been a lot worse. And it's for this reason that Dan Dresner makes the point that the the system worked. That's one of the titles of his books. The system worked because if you look at bilateral cooperation between two great powers, if you look at the Bretton Woods institutions, they really stemmed a lot of the, they staunched a lot of the bleeding. So I thought that we would see something comparable. Uh, on 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 March twelfth, twenty twenty, and and to your point, we basically saw the exact opposite. And it's and I think that historians, a decade hence or two decades hence, they really will be not just scratching their heads, but I think that will they'll be expressing a tremendous amount of disappointment in leaders around the world. How is it that we failed the the kind of the um, the outer space alien test that President Reagan and and his counterpart Mikhail Gorbachev uh, posited that. If an alien race were to come and try and wreak havoc on on planet Earth, would the United States and the Soviet Union come together to to repel that alien invasion? And both leaders said that they would. And I, it seems that we failed that test. And what I worry about is it's not just that we failed that test; it's that we have this really now toxic synergy. Uh, and and uh, two officials who are currently now in the Biden Harris administration, uh, uh, Colin Call, who is the uh, Under Secretary of Defense for Policy at the at the Defense Department, and and Thomas Wright, who now really has the, the lead pen on crafting the the forthcoming national security strategy, they published a book, uh, Aftershocks, shortly before they entered into the Biden Harris administration, 
in which they warn of this really toxic synergy between great power competition mm -hmm. on the one hand and transnational challenges on the other, both of those phenomena are reinforcing one another in this very vicious and producing this very vicious feedback loop. And so you have the great powers who, as their, as their strategic frictions intensify, their ability and willingness to cooperate di uh, diminish. And therefore, uh, and then as these transnational challenges grow more intense, the great powers are more liable to blame one another for the, for the, for the worsening of those challenges. So you have this very toxic feedback loop. And so it's, and also uh, Will McCaskill in his new book, Will McCaskill, I, I believe, is he at Cambridge University or Oxford? I'm forgetting if he's based at Cambridge or Oxford, but he has a, a, a really, really compelling new book as well. And he makes this point about this toxic synergy as well. What I worry about is it's not clear to me what phenomena might intervene to break that vicious cycle. Uh, the domestic politics and the great powers are not conducive to a recalibration. Structural trends are not conducive to a recalibration. And so really the only, the only two breaks that I could, the only two interrupters or disruptors that I can see are one, uh, visionary far-sighted statecraft on the one hand, uh, or, uh, Catastrophe, and I and I, I I'm a congenital optimist, so I hate to render that such a such a grim such a grim judgment. But if, and I think we we all should be asking ourselves or grappling with this hypothetical: if the if if as calamitous a global disaster as COVID nineteen not only didn't occasion emergency a cooperation, but actually took removed the floor from underneath. Uh, great power relations, my gosh, what kind of catastrophe might be required in order to make the great powers recognize that they need, that they, uh, that they need to comport themselves differently? And I, and I shudder to think of what those possibilities might be, but those are our two options. We have to figure out a way of breaking that toxic cycle. You know, maybe with COVID, it was too diffuse, but now if you accept that COVID was the cause of our current inflation, which I think is probably pretty obvious one way or the other, whether it was policy mistakes that occurred um, after it. So today, the Fed decision, we had another 75 basis points. Right. And that's going to have enormous consequences for the rest of the world, especially for dollar-denominated emerging market debt. And at the same time, these same some of these, um, the poorest of the emerging markets, they are about to default on their Chinese debt mm -hmm. as well. And that's not very transparent. So I think we're headed for some huge difficulties um, in terms of the overall debt situation in the world and that this could lead to catastrophe in terms of energy supplies, even in Europe and in developed countries, food, the availability of food. And that could lead to more geopolitical problems and internal Strife. I mean, we see demonstrations now in Berlin. Mm -hmm. So, so Absol it really worries me. Uh, I'm very. That's why uh, I liked reading your book. It was so optimistic. You know, optimism <laughs> is. Uh, I think, like any other disposition, it, it has its virtues and its vices. I think that to the extent that optimism can, to the extent that optimism prevents you from lapsing into fatalism, it can be useful. But, but certainly, you don't want to over, you don't want optimism to lapse into complacency, uh, and and you don't want optimism to serve as a blindfold when there are very real challenges. And to your point, lyric just now. The confluence of macroeconomic headwinds is, is is very sobering. So 
we still, the global economy still hasn't fully recovered from the scar, is still dealing with the scar tissue of, of COVID-19. So we haven't fully recovered from, uh, from COVID-19. We, we have an increasingly pronounced K-shaped recovery that has left vast stretches of the developing world behind. So add on to a K-shaped recovery from COVID-19, enduring inflation, uh, the weaponization of energy resulting in very high energy prices, the weaponization of uh, food, food insecurity, uh, and then add on to this, this, uh, this perfect storm of macroeconomic headwinds, uh, superimposed kind of the, the meta challenge of climate change. I was just actually just before, uh, you know, before we began uh, our conversation, I was reading an interview that uh, Professor Duflo gave to the New York Times recently, in which she said, and this judgment just kind of uh, it really stops you in its tracks. She said, I, I'm, I'm roughly, I believe I'm, I'm characterizing her accurately, but her assessment is that climate change on its current track could reverse the uh, reduction in extreme poverty that we've seen over the past three decades. So again, a really, really stark assessment. So when you put all of those challenges together, so COVID-19 scar tissue, enduring inflation, uh, high energy prices, food insecurity, uh, climate change, I think superimposed on all of those challenges, um, it's again, and, and one last point that I'll make is that a lot of the a lot of the fiscal stimulus that countries might have thrown uh, at these challenges, a lot of the you know the the mon- a lot of the liquidity that countries might have thrown at these challenges, uh, they've depleted a lot of that stimulus and liquidity. They're, they depleted a lot of it in 2020 and 2021, and so now their macroeconomic arsenals are substantially depleted. But these challenges right. are going. They're out of intense. ammunition. They're out mm-hmm. of they're out of macroeconomic ammunition in many cases. Right. And that's why, to your point, you have a lot of countries. So China is actually in a very difficult position, not only in dealing with its own economic challenges, but geopolitically, you have a lot of countries that were already at high risk of defaulting on their debt that are even now, they're even more, uh, they they pose even greater credit risks than they did uh, a year ago or two years ago. And so they're appealing even more strenuously to China to forgive some of the, the, uh, the debt that they owe. So I think that the global economy is is headed for for a rough patch. And to your point, uh, I think you know we and history history tells us that uh, a sustained you know sustained economic uh, downturns uh, very often cause or are at least associated with sustained periods of uh, fractious geopolitics are also associated with or perhaps contributing to uh, sustained periods of nationalist of, of rising nationalism, rising populism. So we have a we do have a, a difficult uh, stretch ahead of us. But what I will say is, um, and this is why you know history matters, and and why I think that um, you know history tells us that human beings have agency. As as difficult as the situation is now, uh, you know the situation could be worse. And I think I often so. A lot of observers are invoking the 1930s for you know for good reason, but if you compare today versus the 1930s, one, there are far more democracies today than there were in the interwar period. Number uh, number one, number two, in the 1930s there really wasn't there obviously wasn't a post-war order. When we think about post-war order, meaning after World War II, there was no post-war order of which to speak. Today, yes, the post-war order is under grave duress from within and without, but. Um, it nonetheless has a substantial amount of inertia that it has accumulated over about 75 or 80 years. So there is some kind of apparatus at least in place. I think that today China and Russia face far more constraints in challenging that system than Japan and Germany did in contesting the prevailing international system in the 1930s. And so, um, and also I think that even though the global economy is headed for a difficult patch, uh, 
even when you look at some of the most bearish forecasts, it's not clear that kind of a protracted global depression that, you know, lasting a decade long, that doesn't seem to be in the offing. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, we, sh we don't want to be complacent. We don't want to be sanguine, but it's not clear to me that, you know, we're going to be experiencing sort of 1930s redux. It's, it's going to be different. It's going to be turbulent. It's going to be very rough. Um, but I, I think that the situation on balance, I would much rather be managing uh, today's geopolitical frictions than, than those that prevailed in the 1930s. Mm. Well, you know, one thing I noticed on a hopeful note to end is that um, after the speech uh, that Putin gave overnight, China immediately issued a statement calling for a ceasefire. Yes, yes. That was real, I, I think, you know, better late than ever. Absolutely. Well, if you're... <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that we have- In their own self-interest, they're Absolutely. seeing what this is doing to Europe, which is their major market. Right? Absolutely right. And my mm -hmm. sense is, and again, only, you know, only Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin and perhaps their top advisors know, you know, what was said, you know, at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit. But for Putin to, so this is just a few days ago, obviously, but one, for Putin to declare publicly at a forum that was being widely watched around the world, for him to declare publicly to concede that China has questions and concerns uh, about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that was quite telling. And then, as you said, for China publicly to call for a ceasefire is also very telling. I think that China is increasingly distraught, not only by the course of the war, but by the realization that this war is now going to drag on for much longer than China had anticipated, that the externalities of this war are going to grow far more pronounced. And so I would have to imagine that uh, China is increasingly not just irritated, but it's actually quite concerned by the the military, not so much the military, but by the economic and diplomatic impact that Russia's invasion is having on China's national interests. I would have to imagine that China, at least privately, um, is is prevailing upon Putin to recalibrate, to reconsider. And if you're Russia, uh, if you don't have the diplomatic support of China and, and India, I mean, prior to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit, Sure, Russia had lost the West, but Russia had been saying, we don't really need the West. Look, we have escape hatches in China and India. And sure, Russia is strengthening its relationships with China and India, but China and India have made it very clear that they are increasingly apprehensive about the trajectory of the war. So if you're Putin, I, I think you have to be nervous about losing that diplomatic uh, backing of China and Russia. But I, I think I absolutely agree. You know, For China to call for a ceasefire is very, very telling. And I think that Putin has to be nervous. Whether China is able to prevail upon Russia privately is uh, is is sort of a, a question that the answer uh, to which remains to be seen. But I think it's very very telling. I think so too, and and hopeful. I can't imagine a better better news to wake up to tomorrow than there would be a ceasefire. In, Fingers crossed. Russia and Ukraine. That would make markets would be happy. I can say yes. <laughs> to say that, Absolutely and everybody right. would. So if there's one single event that we could wish for. I think that would that would be it. That's absolutely but, you know, right. I, I th you know, there's so much happening today and it affects us all. Um, into everything that we've been talking about is not just abstract. It affects our daily lives. And I think that what your book does is really give that framework for people to understand all of these issues that are happening and the dynamics between them. So um, I urge you to read Ali's book, which is America's Great Power Opportunity, Revitalizing U.S. Foreign Policy to Meet the Challenges of Strategic Competition. And just one last question. Um, are we, do you think that we will succeed? 
Well, I'm I'm a hopeless optimist. I'm a congenital optimist. I can kind of tell. <laughs> yes, it, it 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 becomes quickly clear. So uh, I think that the United States uh, it has a storied tradition of overcoming uh, not only of weathering periods of domestic upheaval, but also of defying prognostications of terminal decline. It, there's no self-evident reason why it should be beyond the capacity of the United States to do so once more. So I, I'm kind of a pragmatic optimist in the sense, and in the sense that uh, America's competitive advantages will not automatically renew themselves. The United States will have to do a tr an extraordinary amount of work at home and abroad to renew those competitive advantages. It has its work cut out for it. There's no constitutional amendment that says, America, thou shalt renew. Uh, renewal takes work. Uh, but the United States has renewed itself before. Uh, it can do so uh, again. And I think certainly, uh, as formidable as America's challenges are at home and abroad, I think that uh, I would rather have America's challenges than those uh, that, that China and Russia confront. So I'm cautiously optimistic, but the United States needs to get to work, and it needs to get to work now. Thank you, Ali Wein, for joining me today. And thank you to the people behind the scenes as well who make EconView possible, managing editor Ying Zan and our producer, Sam Fu. Please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast. Thank you. Lyric, thank you so much. 